A reading from the prophet Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for it. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal, and because my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths, so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been, scattered on a day of clouds, in total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There, they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. As for you, my flock, the Lord God says this. Look. I am going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also the muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddled. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, 
I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. The word of the Lord. So have you ever had to go somewhere that you didn't want to go? I realize it was just Thanksgiving weekend, so there's probably like an in-laws joke I could make here, but that's not really where I'm going. I'm thinking back to a time in May when I was invited to visit a North Park seminary class. North Park is where I work, and this particular class was in the Logan Correctional Center, which is a women's prison three hours outside of the city, and I didn't want it. And it wasn't the drive, and it wasn't the oppressive environment that I knew I would encounter there with the catena wire and the guard towers and the security checks. The reason I didn't want to go is I knew the students that I would encounter in that class had experienced trauma, had dealt with issues in their life that, that I would struggle to understand and was ill-equipped to answer. I, I couldn't fix that. And yet I went, and it was all those things, right? It was the very dilapidated building. It was the guards with uh, rifles. It was uh, security checkpoints. And I, I listened to the students, and they told stories of deep family trauma. They told stories of community dysfunction. There was an open grieving over lost relationships, lost status. Uh, a profound sense of regret um, was present there. But there was something else. There was an real palpable enthusiasm for getting to come together and study the words of Christ, the scriptures. There was a, a, a joy in the promises that all things would be made new, that this life was not all, that Christ came to renew sinners. There was a hope in the gospel. And I drove home that day emotionally exhausted, but so encouraged, spiritually just charged up, so honored to count them as my sisters in Christ, women who not only gathered to study scripture and pray, but who, who work together and, and talk about how they can be ambassadors of Christ, who they can bring this gospel message to the other people in the institution where they live. And I share that story because if we are going to engage in the justice work of God, we are going to need to go into broken places. We are going to need to go into places that are dark. And maybe some of you are like me, and that is not where you want to go. That's not where you feel the most comfortable. You easily feel overwhelmed and out of your depth. And so I want to turn to Ezekiel 34, where, where this phrase, I will shepherd them with justice, it really caught my attention as I read it. And I want to ask, what does Ezekiel have to teach us about doing justice, about being a just community? And I'm going to have three points today. And three things that I think we can take from this passage so you can know where I'm going. First is that God knows and God cares about our history. The second is God promises to show up. And the third is God calls us to solidarity with people on the margins. So let's turn to Ezekiel 34. You can uh, find this in your bulletins if you want to read along. I'm going to start and read the first uh, Sampling from the first six verses. But before we do that, I just want to set the stage here, right? So Ezekiel is a Jewish young man. He's taken into exile into Babylon. He's a priest. He's a member of the priestly caste. And he now has a ministry amongst the whole community of exiles that are living on the outskirts of Babylon. As we get to chapter 34, we, the news has just arrived to this community that Jerusalem has been destroyed, that the Temple of Solomon, this great wonder of the ancient world, has been destroyed that it's not going back. And surely these people are wondering, are we ever going back? Is there any back to go to? I'm sure there was shock. 
I'm sure there was despair, maybe a little bit of cynicism. I'm sure their hearts longed for justice. And as we read this, another, another thing to keep in mind is when it's talking about shepherds, and David read it so beautifully, it's really referring to the kings and the ruling elite of Israel. That in the ancient Near East, not just in Hebrew culture, but in Egyptian and Babylonian culture, shepherds was also a stand-in for the political class. Um, and so if pronouncing woe at the beginning, he's pronouncing woe on the rulers of Israel. Now let's just read the words of the prophet, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? And then jumping to verse 4, you have not strengthened the weak shepherds. You have not healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. So the charge here is pretty straightforward, right? The Israelite kings have been seeking personal gain. They've been living a life of indulgence at the expense of their people, at the expense of their flock. They did not strengthen the weak. They did not want to get their hands dirty with the sick and the injured. They couldn't be bothered to seek after the stray and the lost. Who has time for that? And so the prophet sums up their rule as a rule of violence and a rule of cruelty. Now, as I read this, I thought, why, why is Ezekiel starting here? Now, we just got the news that Jerusalem had been destroyed. There, there is really no more monarchy. So is this kind of just piling on? It's just kind of taking cheap shots after the fact that, hey, you guys failed. But it, but it occurred to me, he's not starting here for the shepherds. He's not speaking to them. He's speaking to the people. And that when we are crying out for justice, part of what we're crying out for is for our story to be seen. And God wants these exiles living in Babylon to know that he sees them. He knows their story. He knows where they come from. He knows that it's a complicated story, that in fact, God warned them not to have kings through his prophet Samuel. The people insisted, God gave in, you know, but Samuel said, hey, you're not going to like it. And, and it did end in failure. But he knows it was a, a painful story. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to live through the wars and the invasions. It's one thing to live through when they gathered up all the money as they did on a few occasions and sent it off to Syria or Egypt trying to buy peace and usually failing to buy peace. And ultimately, these people had been uprooted, forced to relocate miles and miles from their homeland, separated from family, separated from all the lives that they knew. They had a complicated story. They had a painful story. And they had a shameful story. Abraham had been promised that his seed, his succeeding generations would be a blessing to the nations. But instead of being a blessing to the nations, they're a laughing stock amongst the nations. They're the epitome of a failed state, of a people that just couldn't hack it and didn't make it as they sit on the banks of Babylon and reflect on where they've come. And I think if you're hearing these words today, God wants you to know that he knows your story. He knows it with all its complexity and its complications. He knows the pain that you've experienced. He knows the shameful parts of your story, the parts that, that you really you know, hope nobody ever finds out. But God knows our story. And I think if we're here wanting to proceed and push forward the cause of justice today, there's a challenge to us here, a challenge to engage in history, not the kind of 
propaganda where we pat ourselves on the back and we demonstrate how great we really are, but a history of, of who we actually are, a history that's not afraid to look with open eyes on the moral and spiritual failings that we ourselves perpetuate and that we've inherited from those who've come before us. A history that doesn't just talk about the triumphant sheep, but that names the pain of the sheep that were left behind along the way. When God is telling people, I have seen the, you know, how you've been neglected, how you've been abandoned, the sick have not been healed, the weak have not been strengthened, you've been left as prey to wild animals. He's validating this story, this experience that these Israelite brothers and sisters had experienced in their own lives, experience of kings and systems failing them, a series of being taken, a, a history of being taken advantage of. So God knows our history. If we're to do justice, I think we need to engage in history, but it's not just a history of exploitation and wrong. It's a history that points to the victory of God. Go to the second point. God promises to show up. Reading, starting in verse 11 from Ezekiel 34. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so will I look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total dark. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays, bandage the injured, strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. Some commentators call this the gospel according to Ezekiel. And here Ezekiel pivots from a painful and shameful history to proclaim good news to the people who are listening to him, the people who are in exile. And he uses this very metaphoric and agrarian kind of extended metaphor of the sheep and the pasture. And I just want to pull out what I think are the four, four parts of this salvation that Ezekiel is pronouncing to his people. And the very first one, and maybe the most shocking one, is that God himself is going to take up their cause, that God is going to show up. You notice all the eyes, I will, I will, I myself will gather my sheep. Have you ever experienced a moment of transcendence, a moment where the presence of God kind of made the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Maybe it was in a, a worship service. Maybe it was in a, a time in nature where you just felt presence of the Lord around you, or maybe as I was sharing uh, in my experience at Statesville, like being around other believers and just getting encouraged by their testimony and their witness. I think there's something deep inside of us that just hungers for that transcendence. And often, at least what I've experienced, it's been very fleeting. It's like the sand through the fingers, but we long to be in the presence of God, the essence of life, the one who is holy, who is all good, who is all beautiful, who, is, who has the truth who can set us free. And what Ezekiel is promising is that God is going to show up, that God is going to be amongst his people. He's not going to work through proxies. He's not going to be in a tent that's outside the camp. He's going to be there gathering his people in communion with his people. The second promise here is promise of community. 
And imagine these people have been taken from their home. They are literally strangers in a strange land. They are all, they surely feel isolated and, and scattered around. And God is promising they will gather, be gathered up. Notice all the scattered gather language we have here, that he is going to bring them back. He is going to form them again as a unit where they can work together, where they can play together, where they can worship together. They will have a sense of being part of a group. And it's not going to be just anywhere. He's going to bring them back to their own land. So it's not just that he's bringing them to community. He's bringing them home to a place where they have stories, where their ancestors have lived, where their ancestors are buried. They're going to be returning to home. A homeless people will come, will come back. God's going to be present. He's going to restore their community. The third promise here in Ezekiel's vision is of abundance and rest, that there's going to be good grazing land. They're going to be grazing on the pastures of Israel, on the lofty mountains of Israel. In fact, they're going to be so much grass to graze on that they're going to be able to just lay down on a good grazing land and rest because they've had their fill and they're confident they'll have more eat in the future days. There's a promise here of abundance, a promise of rest, a rest from all the trying to prove ourselves, a rest of trying to win approval, of trying to get people to notice us, that God will be there and they can rest. They can let all of that go. And then the final promise here is a promise of hope and mercy. That for those who might feel like they're on the outside, that life has kind of passed them by, they may identify as the weak or the sick or the ill, the lost. The king, Christ, the shepherd is coming and he is going to particularly as we read in this passage, the, the shepherd's heart here is for the weak, strengthening the weak, encouraging the weak, tending to the sick and the injured, taking the time to seek after the stray and the lost and bring them and welcome them back into the fold. So we have a, a promise of God's presence, a promise of community, a promise of abundance and rest, and a promise of hope and mercy. And we're about to enter into that time of year, if you worship here, where we get into Advent, and then in the spring, in the January, and through the spring, we really focus on the life of Christ. And I think as Christians, we can affirm that Jesus, in many ways, initiates this new age, this reign of this shepherd. And it's be interesting to look back through the Gospels and see all the ways that Jesus fulfills this promise, that Jesus is God with us. And yet, even on this side of the cross, we still pray, thy kingdom come. We're still waiting for a more full realization of this promise. And it, perhaps to those exiles outside of Babylon, this all sounded good, it sounded hopeful, but it sounded a long way off. What are we to do with these promises when we're in a dark place where we don't see, we don't feel the reality of God with us? It's hard to understand the hope and mercy that awaits. But what did those exiles do? They wrote all of this down. They formed groups where they could come together and study these words. They taught these words to their kids. They made sure that this was passed on from generation to generation. They let these words nourish them. It gave them a sense of identity, a sense of purpose. What do the women in the Logan facility do? They study these scriptures. They celebrate these promises. They name them for themselves. Paul calls, you know, calls the gospel the words of life. There's a sense when people are looking for justice that the promises of God sustain and we hold dearly to them. We center our thoughts on them. And that Christians throughout the ages in very dark places from catacombs in Rome to sugar plantations in the Caribbean have held on to the promises of God, have sung swing low, sweet chariot, holding on, waiting for God's deliverance and salvation. 
God cares for our history. God promises that he is going to show up. And he asks us to hold on to these promises, to center our lives around them. But there's one more thing. Ezekiel ends this passage with a challenge and a charge to the people who's listening to him. And as he turns in verse 17 and he addresses my flock. As for you, my flock, the Lord God says this. Look, I am going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied. It's such a, I find it such a compelling image and such an arresting image as I think about this. You catch the image here that the sheep are being led in a long line out into a new pasture that's green and bright. And, and the sheep that get there first, they immediately start eating the grass and, and enjoying the pasture. And once they've refreshed themselves and they're feeling full, they just start frolicking and enjoying the sunshine and enjoying being alive. And they butt their heads together, I don't know, whatever sheep do for fun. And they're, they're just enjoying themselves. And yet, while they romp around, the pasture is getting trampled and turned up, and the people, the sheep that are coming later, will not get to enjoy it in the same way. Or, or to take the other image, it's a bright, sunny day, as I imagine it, and sheep are being led down the bank into where there's a nice, clear stream running down a hill. And again, the sheep that get there first, they, they lap up the water, they feel their thirst being refreshed, they feel themselves being revived in the way we are when we, we drink cool water on a hot day. And having enjoyed drinking the water, they start to wander into the stream. They let the cool water flow around them. And you can imagine them, or at least I imagine them, shaking their heads. I don't know if they do it like dogs do, but, you know, the water kind of splaying around. And again, they're just enjoying the sunshine, enjoying the coolness, never thinking about the sentiment that their feet are churning up as they walk around in the stream, never thinking about what does this mean for all the sheep who are still behind them. And so I think the charge here is not, one of aggression. It's not one of malice. It's one of negligence. It's one of mindlessness. It's one of being so caught up in our own projects and our own kind of ideas and and pursuing our own agenda that we can't be bothered to think about what that might mean for other people. We never see the muddied water that they drink. It's clear when I got there. What's, What's your problem? And I think the response here is, is, you know, not feeling guilty that we have green pasture and clear water. The response is really to intentionally listen to the other sheep, to put ourselves in proximity. And I want to confess here that, that this, this gets through the armor for me. I do not stand here as a master of this. In fact, over the last few years, I've just been convicted of really how much of my life I've spent trying to impress the fancy people, trying to pursue my own agenda of social advancement, of pro- professional advancement, and how little I've paid attention to the people who are behind me, the people who I saw as behind me, the people who maybe didn't have all the advantages I had. I remember all the way back in junior high, kind of starting off as a pastor's kid who lived on the outside of town. There was another uh, student came up, and he was a, a kid who lived in the trailer park, also on the outside of town. And instead of seeing how much we had in common, and instead of accepting his invitation to be a friend, all I saw was a threat. I'm friends with you. The cool kids are never going to hang out with me. I want to hang out with them. 
He's like, I probably can't hang out with you. Try to be nice and polite, but really, no, I'm going to eat over here. Or I think as a young professional showing up at the office and being really excited about kind of starting to build a professional career and, and meeting a woman in the office who seemed a little disconnected from what was going on. She's fine. She did her stuff. But there didn't seem to be a lot of energy there. There were other people that were the movers and the shakers. You always want to be with the movers and the shakers, right? Like you want them to notice you. You want to be part of that. And so I really, that's where I invested my energy and emotional uh, kind of capital. Years later, when she left, I found out that she had been dealing with a very long-term, very serious medical condition. I had no idea that was going on. I look back and think, I surely could have learned a lot if I would have actually paid attention about what it looks like to live with resilience and live through difficult things. I probably had opportunities to be an encouragement to her, to, to make the path a little bit easier. I didn't see it, didn't do it, wasn't there. So I'm challenged by this passage and challenged to step forward and to find ways that personally we can be more mindful of who is coming behind us. I think we learn from our gospel reading. You know, the gospel reading, I think, intentionally is echoing some of the same sheep and goats language. But Christ in that passage is giving us a little more positive direction, right? What can we do? We can offer food to the hungry. We can offer clothes to the naked. We can visit those in prison. We can visit those who are sick and ill. We don't have to come to fix it. We can be present with them, be in proximity with them. And Christ promises that in so doing, we encounter the very presence of God. Maybe a little glimpse of what I saw in my one visit to Logan Prison. The presence of Jesus is often with the weak sheep, the sheep who are on the outside. So there's a lot of applications and a lot of ways we can go with this. And I just want to, I want to conclude with this. Our church very I think uniquely and powerfully has been placed in proximity with people who have been uprooted from everything they knew, uprooted from their home, from their food, from their families, and they're, they're living right here. They're literally all around us, above us, around us. And it has been a real encouragement to my heart, and I want to say thank you to so many of you, to see you step up and see you want to respond, starting with that Wonderful welcome that we did outside the doors in July 31st that Kelly organized. And just to learn what it starts to mean to move into proximity. But I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've arrived. I think the challenge for us collectively is to continue to lean into what Ezekiel has for us. To think carefully about our history, our complicated history. There have been saints that have done cross-cultural ministry really, really well. There have been people who have done it really, really poorly. What can we learn from when we have been welcoming as a church, when as a church we've failed to welcome, we've insisted the other people you know, kind of become more like us before we can be bothered to encounter them? Can we think about this history? Can we understand this history? Can we proclaim the promises of God? Can we find in the promises of God a common ground where it is where we are all together under the cross of Christ waiting for the good news of the kingdom to come. There were, and some of you were here a couple weeks ago, a worship service in this space with uh, about 70 residents from the building just worshiping God together here. What a powerful testimony. Pray that there would be more of that, that we can come together as, and, and see each other as brothers and sisters, 
walk side by side, welcoming them into the pastures that we enjoy, welcoming and inviting them to drink from the waters that we ourselves drink from. And then the third challenge, I think, as we think about this, is how do we center, really center their experience, really listen to them? Push to the side our own you know, desire for validation, our own need to be seen as good, socially conscious people in a socially conscious church. What, what do they really need? How can we understand their experiences? How can we take course corrections when we understand, hey, well, we maybe thought that was helping or we never even thought about that at all, but that's leaving the ground muddied. That's stirring up all the gunk in the water. We need to course correct. We need the humility to listen to our brothers and sisters and then be willing to change course. I believe God is calling us to be a witness, not only to our neighbors in this building, but to our neighbors in that building and in the other buildings around here. Be a witness to our city by leaning into becoming this distinctly just community. And I pray that where he gives us that call, his spirit will enable us to heed that call. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.